we are in the third and final weekend uh, this week uh, looking at faith works, uh, a view, an overview of the book of James. As I've been mentioning each week, uh, there are Bible notes online at the Timberline Church website, daily Bible reading notes, so that you can uh, check those out, download them all, or check them out each day. And uh, this weekend, as we finish this, we're overviewing James chapter 4 and 5, and the title of the message is Lose It, Lose It. We've been thinking about uh, living it, living our faith, taming it, especially the tongue, and this weekend, lose it. Uh, you're probably aware that something pretty big happened in Britain yesterday. How many of you are aware of a royal wedding? Uh, yesterday, on a, it was a very beautiful sunny day um, in England, which is kind of unusual because our summer normally lasts about 25 minutes. So we were excited about that. But Meghan and Harry got married, and the whole nation is uh, celebrating um, this weekend. And everything went, went great. Things can go wrong at weddings, can't they? Things can go wrong. Uh, the bride trips over coming down the aisle, which is a bit awkward. Um, the groom is so nervous he faints. That's even more awkward. Or the preacher can mess things up too. I always get scared doing weddings because it's a big day and you can, you can mess it up. I heard of one pastor at a wedding years ago. He was wearing a radio mic and these things can be dangerous and he wasn't that confident that the marriage was going to work out, but he went ahead with the ceremony, and he, mar he, he did the thing and uh, married the couple, and they're uh, recessing, I think, is the, is the term. They're going down the aisle, and everybody's smiling, and the pastor turned to his associate, not knowing that his radio mic was still on. He said, I'll give this one six months. gives me the chills just to think about it. It's like, beam me up, Jesus. That would just be. <laughs> Yesterday for the royal wedding, uh, the preacher didn't mess it up. On the contrary, the preacher was Bishop Michael Curry, and he, he rocked it. He's the presiding bishop of the American Episcopal Church, a man descended from slaves and sharecroppers. And he passionately painted an, an amazing vision of community, of nations, of business and governments where love lives and leads. And he, he, he said things like this, and I quote, when love is the way, poverty will become history. When love is the way, the earth will be a sanctuary. When love is the way, we will lay down our swords and shields by the riverside to study war no more. When love is the way, there's plenty good room, plenty good room for all God's children because when love is the way, we actually treat each other well like we're actually family. And then one of my favorite moments in all of this pomp and ceremony and the Queen's there and Philip's there and Charles is there looking at his iPad, you know, and in all of this um, pomp and ceremony, suddenly Bishop Michael said, I better sit down because we've got to get y'all married, which wasn't part of the script, I believe. Some of the royal family looked intrigued and some a little bewildered, even amused, and Elton John looked like he was on the edge of tears. But I think it was amazing. And I believe that James would say a hearty amen to that message about love. You see, 
James spoke about royalty and about love as well. Back in chapter 2, verse 8, he said, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. This idea that love is the king of laws or the law fit for a king. James would say amen to that message that everybody in the UK is talking about right now. But as he wrote to those scattered, persecuted people, they were doing anything but loving each other. James could see wars and fights among them. And the word war there in the Greek, it, it, it's got two meanings. It means hostility and it means an ongoing campaign. These people we're not just having a, a few skirmishes here or there. They, they, were, they, they were really in antagonistic relationships, many of them in the church. They, they are scattered. They are oppressed. You'd, you'd think they'd just hang together, but no, they're not. There are class conflicts between rich and poor. There are wannabe teachers who want to grab the first place and they're fighting over it. They are, they are praising God in the worship service, blessed be he, blessed be he, but when they get out of the service, they're cursing each other in the street. And the core message that James brings is this, lose, lose some of those attitudes. Now, now, are you like me? I don't get excited normally when I lose something. That's, and I lose stuff all the time. How many of you are like that? Come on, just indicate. Some of you are nudging each other right now. It, it happened again this morning. I, I, I lose my keys. I lose my wallet. I lose my sunglasses. I've got an app on my phone that I can press. I've got one of those tile things, and it tells me where the stuff is, which is great until I lose the phone. And I, I lose stuff uh, all the time. I, I, I lose my car in parking lots. Anybody else do that? You park your car and you come out and you, like, where, where is that? And you're embarrassed and you march around the parking lot praying the prayer you pray when you've lost the car, which goes like this. Show me the car. Losing something is not normally something you would celebrate, but James is letting us know that in discipleship as a, as a follower of Jesus, there are some things that we need to cast aside, some things that we need to lose. It, it echoes Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, where the writer says, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. James is saying, there's some, there's some stuff that's going on in your life that you need to lose with God's help. So what are a few things for us to lose? Well, here's the first thing if you're following in the program. Number one, let's lose illusions about the church. Let's lose illusions about the church. Look at what James says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, you cannot get but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You see, I, I've heard people say, if we could just get back to the, to, to the way it was in the early church, everything would be great. It would be, it would be amazing. And that is an idealistic view, which frankly is unhelpful. Things got bad at times in the early church. In fact, 
some commentators believe that some of these people were converted zealots. And zealots would use violence to get their way. And so it is possible that when James says some of you are killing each other, it's possible that he meant it literally. And even if he didn't, the early church wasn't perfect because it was filled with people like us. Acts chapter 6, look at this. Acts chapter 6, in those days when the number of disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. I mean, they're having a fight about food supplies. 1 Corinthians 1, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. 2 Corinthians 12, I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorder. Philippians 4, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. This is not a perfect church, this is a human church. And here's the danger, everybody, I want you to see this. The danger is that we can have an idealistic view of church, even of Timberline, and then when someone in it or something about it irritates us, and if you want to get irritated, join a church, then we get like, we're shattered and, and we head off somewhere else to try and find the perfect church. I've talked about this before. We all need to embrace the, the gift of disillusionment. The gift of disillusionment. You see, if you were born into a healthy family, you were born into an illusion. And the illusion went like this. You are the center of the universe. Do you you don't, well, you don't remember because you were three months old. If you were hungry, here's what you had to do. Just scream. Just scream. Be taken care of. When you're three months old, forgive me for being so blunt. When you're three months old, if you want to poop, poop. poop. Some of you are saying, he just said poop. Yes, I did. If you're three months old, you want to poop, just poop. It'll be taken care of. You try that when you're 25. <laughs> you see, what's happened by the time you got to 25, I hope, is that you've been divested of the illusion that it's all about you. There are illusions about marriage created by Hollywood. Why is it that in those romantic comedies, no one ever drools on the pillow, do they? And the happy couple wake up in the morning and the first thing they do, having been asleep for 10 hours, is share a kiss. Yuck. There's none of that morning breath that could knock you off your feet at 50 yards. No, it's all mythical. But then you get through the illusion and you start really loving. So let's... Give up myths about the church and not jump from church to church, always looking for the perfect one. And I want to make a statement that some of you are going to be shocked by. Please do not misquote me out of context, okay? Are you, are you listening? Some of us need to give up attending Timberline. You say, Pastor Jeff, have you lost your mind? Is it wedding fever? No. When I say some of us need to give up attending Timberline, I mean some of us need to go deeper. Because I don't attend my family. They're in my heart, my soul, my gut. I don't attend them. And it's possible in our consumer culture to just attend something, but to never endeavor to go deeper. Let's give up illusionary ideas and commit to what is. Secondly, 
Secondly, let's lose arrogance and pride. Let's lose arrogance and pride. Verse 6, James says, that is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And then he says in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Now, this humility thing, it doesn't come naturally, does it? Don King, the famous boxing promoter, he said, I never cease to amaze myself and I say that humbly. Winston Churchill said, we are all worms, but I do believe that I am a glowworm. And we Christians can struggle with this as, as well, a sense of arrogance. Um, I used to, for about 30 years, I helped lead a conference in England uh, called Spring Harvest. I, I spoke at it again just a few weeks ago. And at its height, it, it was an amazing privilege. We had about 60,000 people come for a week of teaching and, and celebration in different sites. It was, it was uh, amazing. Uh, some years ago, I got on a train going to London. Uh, I went to the station near uh, where we were living. And um, it's a little countryside station with, and you have to buy a ticket from a machine and the machine was broken. So I had no ticket, and if you don't have a ticket, you can get fined. Um, so I was a little nervous, and I'm sitting on the train, and here comes the, the conductor to check the tickets. And he's, I was going to say, he's, he's not just having a bad day, he's having a bad year. You know what I'm saying? He's barking at people, tickets, tickets, tickets. And there's no, there's no good morning, there's no have a nice day, there's no how you doing, tickets. And now I'm feeling a bit scared, because I don't have a ticket. And so he came up to me, ticket, and I said, I'm sorry, the machine's broken. He grunted something and, he, and took my credit card. And, and I noticed that on, on his lapel, there were a couple of badges, a fish badge and a dove. And I thought, he's either, he's either a member of the International Fish Fryers Association <laughs> or he is a Christian. So while he's printing my ticket, I said, excuse me, I said, uh, I said, are you a Christian? He said, yes. <laughs> I said, oh, right. Now, now he, doesn't know that I'm, he doesn't know that I'm a Christian, okay? I, I've got no lapel badges, and, and it's winter, so I'm not even wearing my Christian sandals. There is no indication <laughs> that I am a Christian. He said, yes. I, I said, oh, good, good, good. I, I said, do you, you, do you go to a church around here? He said, yes. I said, how's it going? How's it going? He said, not good, not good. I said, oh, I'm sorry, why is that? He said, well, he said, in my church, they're just not as advanced as, as in their Christianity as me. He said, I'm just ahead of, the, I'm ahead of them. They're just not at my level. I'm frustrated. Uh, so again, don't, remember, he doesn't know that I'm a Christian. So, so I, I thought, well, I'll act a bit stupid, which is a gift that comes naturally. I, I said, <laughs> I, I said, well, how'd you get more advanced in it then? How'd you do that? He said, well, every year I go to a conference which has helped me to become more advanced in my faith. It is called Spring Harvest. So I said, oh. I said, oh, I do a bit of stuff with Spring Harvest. He said, do you? I said, yes! <laughs> it was catching. So, he said, well, let me tell you something. 
He said, this station here, he said, I happen to know that Jeff Lucas lives near here. I said, really? He said, yes. And I was so tempted, ladies and gentlemen, I wanted to say, don't you love that man? I do, I, you know. <laughs> I, I said, well, I said, that's me. That's me. Look at my credit card. That's me. I'm Jeff. He said, no, you're not. And I thought, maybe he's right. He's more advanced. You know, he, <laughs> he knows stuff. And he moved along the train. Tickets! Tickets! Something else happened on that train. If I have time, I'll tell you. Humility rather than arrogance. The Apostle Paul celebrated as well as James. Humility, Ephesians 4. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Ephesians 4, 7, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Humility was not celebrated in New Testament times, and it was the Christians who really introduced this truth, this attitude. Are we humble? Woodrow Wilson said there are some people who can strut sitting down. Pastor Dowry often says, you can tell if you've got a servant attitude by the way you act when people treat you like one. Humility. Thirdly, let's lose quick on the draw words that hurt. Let's lose quick on the draw words that hurt. In verse 11 of chapter 4, James says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Kataleo is the word, speak against, harmful speech now, I'm not going to linger on this because we talked about it last weekend. But just to say this, we can hurt. Let's remind ourselves we can hurt or we can build with our words. Galatians 5.15, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. Let's just slow down for a moment and turn this around. Some of us still live with the lingering effects of words that have been spoken to us. Um, I have one brother, he's older than me, and he's better looking than me. Some of you are looking at me going, that ain't hard, you know. He... <laughs> and uh, when I was 12, his, uh, he brought a girlfriend home to meet the family, and my mom innocently said, oh, Jeffrey, only my mom used to call me Jeffrey and my wife when I was bad. Jeffrey, he looks quite a lot like Terry, doesn't he? And I, I can still see the look on her face and the way she wrinkled. Like, and she said, no, he looks nothing like Terry. And this 12-year-old kid, and it's all right, I'm not having a pity party or anything, I'm just using the illustration. I still remember the effect of that lingering with me like this casual curse and James is saying be careful with that and I want you to know at the end of our service minutes from now we're going to pray about maybe some words that have been spoken over you said to you that you still live under number four 
Number four, let's lose a judgmental attitude. Let's lose a judgmental attitude. James says, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, I want to say something that I, I, I don't want you to miss. Judgment is not cool these days. In fact, one of the most misquoted scriptures in the entire Bible is, judge not that you be not judged. And the idea is that if you, if you say that anything is wrong, that's wrong. The idea is that you have to be endlessly tolerant and you're not allowed to have firm convictions about anything. And basically what we're living in, we're living in the fog. Did anyone notice the fog out there today? We're living in the fog of a liberal fundamentalism that says... If you don't agree with the liberal consensus, we're going to call you intolerant and we won't tolerate your opinion. Anybody with me? Now, we don't need to be ranting and we don't need to be finger pointing, but we need to know that James and more, Jesus, they don't forbid judgment. Jesus calls us to beware of false prophets. You've got to make a judgment call if that's going to happen. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth and calls them to make a judgment about somebody who was living in blatant immorality. Jesus judged the Pharisees in their plastic piety. John the Baptist brought judgment with his withering sermons. Justice is part of a healthy society. James is full of judgments. It's not that we don't judge anything. It's just that judgmental attitude where we, we write people off and we judge the book by its cover. Somebody said to me just a few days ago, I don't suffer fools gladly. Not sure why they shared that with me. And normally I let it pass and I said, well, it's a good thing Jesus does, isn't it? Because he's got me and with respect, you too. And compared with his wisdom, we're foolish. Are we, are we judgmental? And if we if we're quick to that, why don't we ask God why that is in us? Is it because some of us are so desperately unhappy with who we are that we have to try and shrug off that feeling by always pointing the finger at somebody else? And we can all do it. Number five. Number five, let's lose our selfish plans and our sense of self-sufficiency. Let's lose our selfish plans and our sense of self-sufficiency. Listen to what James says. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. I remember when I became a Christian back in 1873 that this idea of the will of God freaked me out. I mean, I, 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 the will of God, what's that? And it terrified me that I might miss it. Can anyone identify with that? You were, you were scared. I read every book I could find about the will of God, having first prayed about which book on the will of God it was the will of God for me to read. <laughs> I got confused. I threw open my Bible and put my finger on the verse. I got tense. The will of God was like a tightrope that I might fall off. Uh, I got paranoid. Somebody said, God has a will a, 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 about every detail of your life. That freaked me out. I'm like, oh, Lord, should I go to Albertsons or Safeway today? 
I don't want to take Kay out for a nice anniversary meal, so should I go to Sam's or Costco? And I got nervous of anything that I wanted to do. You ever seen, forgive me if you've got this on your Christian refrigerator. You ever seen that, that plaque, that fridge magnet? It, it says, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. What a perfectly horrid idea. As if any father would just sneer at their children's aspirations and hopes. But, but here's what James is telling us he's telling us it's possible to give your life to Jesus and then gradually take it back again it's possible to make a declaration of dependency when we come to Christ but gradually slowly you don't you'd hardly notice it we, we don't pray about stuff much anymore and we make our decisions independent of inviting others to give an opinion or prayerful reflection and James is speaking to people who were actually boasting about the things that they'd achieved without God's help. It had gone that crazy. And he says, no, you should be saying, if it's the Lord's will, we will do that. Now, just a quick word about that. This idea of saying God willing, the Latin uh, equivalent of God willing, Deo Valenti, D.V., so often Christians, on a notice board outside of a church, it would say, communion, Sunday, 10 a.m., DV. In other words, God willing. Now, sometimes the Apostle Paul, two or three times, he says, God willing. And other times, he just talks about his plans, and he doesn't say, God willing. This is not about vocabulary, but it is about an attitude of submitting our plans and hopes to God. Have we... Somewhere along the line, have we taken our lives back? Why don't we as a piece of homework present that question to the Lord? Where have I taken my life back, Jesus? And C.S. Lewis taught that it's a good idea to ask God questions and then just walk away into everyday life and see what comes up. A question for us this week. But the last thing is this. Number six, let's lose our perspective that now is all there is. Let's lose our perspective that now is all there is. In James 5 and verse 7, he says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. James wants us, wants to remind us that Jesus is coming again. Now, some of you will really relate to this. As, as a new Christian, we were crazy about the second coming, and we were terrified of it too. Uh, there were all those books written about biblical prophecy, identifying key characters in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, and Israel is this, and Russia is this, and Iraq is this, and, and there were even books even trying to say when Jesus was coming, which was crazy, but Christians bought into it. And then people were trying to speculate about the identity of, the, of an antichrist figure, like Henry Kissinger got tagged for it for a while, and even Bob Dylan, until he became a Christian, and messed that theory up. And it all became rather, rather silly. And I, I remember just being pretty terrified of the whole thing. We'd go to the grocery store, having prayed much about which one to go to, and we'd be in Safeway and Kay would disappear somewhere. And I'm like, oh no. I've been left behind. 
and I'm frantically running around the, the grocery store wondering if I'm going to survive the tribulation only to, her, to discover her searching out frozen chicken. And it all got a bit terrifying and a bit silly. But I'm wondering if because of the silliness, we need a reminder that Jesus is coming again. And that this is not pie-in-the-sky irrelevance, but this should galvanize the way we should live. It should shape our perspective. Commenting on the religious culture of 18th century America, a historian said this, Faith meant more than an intellectual assent to a set of doctrines. It was a commitment to the whole self, a hope and trust that, if genuine, ought to be the foundation of an entire way of life and vision of the world. Wow. That's not just a Sunday morning hobby or, or, or a a dab of religion behind the ears to cheer you up and keep you going. That is a, a sense of perspective that will lead to life-altering, beautiful choices and faithfulness. And do you remember when we began this series just three weeks ago? We end it today. I said to you that the book of James, the bookends of the book, of the letter are be patient and prayerful. Be patient and prayerful. And James did that. They took him to the pinnacle of the temple. Extra biblical commentary says, history. And they threw him off. And he survived the fall. And so there are two accounts of what happened next in history. One is that they stoned him until he was finally dead. And the other is that they stoned and clubbed him. And he died a martyr, prayerful and patient. He lived it. I, I told you that there was something else that happened on the train. The conductor moved on down the train. Tickets, tickets. And I'm not judging him. Who knows what demons he was struggling with, what shadows he was wrestling with in his own life but at the next station a family got on the train and they're sitting across the carriage from me and uh, are you like me when you've got nothing to do you, you quite like listening to other people's conversations my wife has that as a hobby I'm going to buy her surveillance equipment for Christmas sometimes we go out for a meal and I'm talking to her she'll go shh 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 On occasion, she actually cups her ear, which is unsubtle. And I'm listening to these people talking, and I don't recognize the language, I think, somewhere in Eastern Europe. And I look across at them, and their clothing is worn. And she has a baby in her arms, but no carry cot or anything for the baby. They look like life is hard. And I'm trying to, I'm, I'm wondering where they're from. And then suddenly, she starts to sing a lullaby to her baby. And I don't recognize the words because of the language difference, but I recognize the tune. It's the beautiful old hymn, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. And the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I am happy all the day. And I'm thinking, this is a Christian family. 
but I, I don't know how to communicate because, you know, I, I'm, again, I, I'm still not wearing sandals, so I don't know how to. So I just looked across at her as she came to the end of the lullaby, and I just went, amen. And she smiled and nodded. And as the train trundled on past the smokestacks of the chimneys of outer London, I thought, God, keep all of us close to the cross, close to the cross where Jesus died. And then, then, rather than taking our lives back gradually, we'll keep pursuing you. Rather than being quick to judge, we'll be gracious. Keep us close, close to the cross.